This is Emily Wright, Head of Content at EG, and today I am joined by Head of Responsible Investment, Real Assets at Aviva, Ed Dixon. How are you? Hi, Emily. Good to be with you today. Doing very well, thank you. Um, excellent. That's a brilliant job title. I really quite enjoy that. Definitely. I'm very, very lucky to have this job. There are only a few of us out there in the industry uh, with the head of responsible investment responsibilities in the larger asset managers. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate. And it might it might sound like an obvious question, but just for anybody kind of listening in who hears that job title and is thinking, how does that work and what does that actually entail? Could you give give us a bit of an overview? Absolutely. Well, Aviva Investors are an asset manager with around 50 billion of assets under management. And that's really across the whole of what people would call real assets or private markets. So it's everything from venture capital and private equity through to direct real estate investing into real estate debt, infrastructure, private corporate debt, and then more exotic things like structured finance, and even more recently, nature-based solutions. So it's a really broad spread of different asset classes. What that means in, in practice is that if we think about all of the things that we're trying to work towards in creating a more sustainable society, so good places to live, great places to work, transportation to get you to and from, clean energy to keep buildings running, this is really our bread and butter. It's the, it's the physical built stuff that we see and use every day. Excellent. Thank you so much. And before we sort of get going and talking about what it is that you're focusing on at the moment, it'd be really, really good to get a bit of background from you, actually, as to how you came into um, the business and then how you came into the role as well. Sure. Well, um, it started with fairly humble beginnings and uh I'm now 38, it's 2022, so this was 20, 20 years ago. And I uh, finished college and wanted to work. So I qualified as a carpenter and did that for about seven years. Uh, I was a, a site manager working on construction sites, building student housing. And uh, in 2008, I lost my job in the crash. Uh, construction industry, everyone will probably remember in 2008, ground to a halt. And um, I had a carpentry qualification and not much else. And I knew that I needed to change things up. So I, uh, I got a place on a sponsored degree course with uh, a developer. And my first project was this very beautiful, sustainable retail building, uh, a Marks and Spencer store um, up near Chester in the north. And it was what Marks and Spencer at the time called a sustainable learning store. So it's basically where they kind of tried out all sorts of new sustainable technologies. And I was really lucky to see that project right the way through from design into preparing the contracts, into actually delivering the project on site, and then right the way into post-occupancy evaluation. And I worked on that project for four years, and that was my first big project. And it was really a kind of baptism of fire in um, sustainable building. And from there, you know, really fortunate that my career grew. So I got into some consulting for a couple of years. I then moved to Land Securities and worked with them on quite a broad sustainability role. And from there, moved into asset management, so I've literally gone over the last 20 years from doing 50 quid jobs on the weekend whilst I was studying for my A-levels through to 50 billion of real assets 20 years later. It's pretty good. Pretty good going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's an inspirational story as well. 
I think we hear Thank a lot you. about how people come into the industry through various different routes and the kind of stories like the one you just told is is great for people to be able to hear um so thank you very much for sharing that with us so a lot of what you do obviously is focusing around um some key issues that the the real estate sector is is facing at the moment and not, not just the real estate sector but all of us um and you know the 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 ongoing issues and problems and solutions that we'll hopefully find, but the problems and challenges that we're facing around um, ESG is something which is a very, very complex and complicated issue, or at least it seems to be from, from, from where I'm sitting, you might have a different view. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you um, was whether you had any thoughts, advice, um, sort of insight really, as to how the industry, the real estate sector can address this issue? I think the first thing I would say here is that over the last couple of years, we've started to have all of these terms, right? So ESG has become very important in investment management. That's really started to spill over into other sectors. People probably might have been remembered thinking more about sustainability, which was probably the dominant kind of theme um, up until the last couple of years. And then you have emerging themes like kind of climate risk and then lots and lots of acronyms that um, that sit around these themes. So people I can absolutely recognize are probably feeling quite confused. And I think what's really important to really get to the nub of this is it's just about thinking long term. That's all it is. It's so simple. It's about thinking long term. So you know, if you give, think about what some potential examples of that might be, it's always possible, right, to screw down a supplier on cost, okay? You can always squeeze out just a little bit more profit. But what if that supplier then goes bust? Thinking long-term would be about working with that supplier to pay them fairly. You can always design a building in a way that is cheaper. There's always something you can take out of the design that will just save that little bit of money and create that just that little bit of extra profit there's always something you can do but actually designing a better building probably means that in the long run it will have lower voids it will be worth more and you'll be able to rent it out on the market for a lot more so that's all it is it's just thinking long term i think increasingly as well it's that difference between thinking just about you and your business and your agenda and thinking a bit more broadly about society so any business has stakeholders, you know, the people that use your products, your staff, um, the people that live in the communities that you operate in. And it's very easy to go about doing your business in a way that doesn't take into account their needs. But actually, again, going to the back to this point about thinking long term, usually that comes back around to bite you in the bum at some point, right? So if you're not considering what your next door neighbors are gonna be thinking about your construction project, you're gonna get a complaint and you'll probably be shut down, right? So thinking long-term, thinking about the needs of your stakeholders, what it's really all about. I think when, we, when we're trying to think about, okay, well, what's the first step for a, a business that's starting to think about this topic? Um, I would refer everyone to the classic business book, uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great. And Jim Collins you, talks about um, getting the right people on the bus and getting people into the right seats before you decide where to drive, right? And that that is a really good piece of uh, advice that's really stuck with me throughout my whole career. I read that book probably 15 years ago. And I think if we apply that to this situation, 
small businesses or any any size business that's starting to go on this journey should be thinking, okay, if I'm not sure what to do, first thing I'm going to do is hire someone. It doesn't have to be a head of sustainability. It doesn't have to be a director. It can be someone at a relatively junior level that's got some experience that can come in, the right person on the bus, you can be put into the right role, sitting in the right seat, and can help the leadership team of that organization to start to plan what are the things that are material to us? What are the things that we should focus on? What are the things that maybe we can deprioritize? How are we going to actually start thinking long term? How are we going to start thinking about our stakeholders? And I think once you've got that person in place, things are going to start to become really clear really quickly. I did like the uh, the, the double analogy there, that the bus and the journey. I think that worked really well. Um, but um, before before we, we we sort of we sort of move on to talk about what you're doing specifically, there is a question that that comes off the back of what you just said, which is that we all know that in the industry at the moment there is a bit of an issue, a bit of a problem around talent. Um, so getting the right people on the bus in the right seats that's challenge one. But arguably, arguably that's challenge two, I suppose. Arguably, challenge one is where are these people? How can they be found? How can they be tracked down? It sounds a bit stalkery, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. And what you see happening at the moment in the industry is uh, a real sort of exodus from one one type of organization to another. So all of the people working in sustainability roles in the big four consultants are all going to the banks. The people that were in the banks are all going to private equity. Uh, the people that are working in smaller consultancies are going into some of the listed companies. And you've got this kind of movement of um, increasingly younger and less experienced people taking on incrementally larger roles to kind of fill to fill the gaps right and that's going all the way down into this sort of feeder courses in university that are starting to put people into roles in consultancy that then grow and then eventually go on to take more senior roles within organizations and I think that's okay you know that's that's what we have at the moment and that's the situation that, that we're faced with if you look at what some of these people are doing, it is really unbelievable. You know, very young people with a really, you know, quite small amount of experience are going into head of sustainability roles in organizations, director roles in organizations. They're taking risks. They're going out on a limb. They're being trusted by the leadership, um, the leadership of those organizations to actually get on and deliver some 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 good stuff. And I think it's working. So I, I think, you know, a lot of organizations, when you're going out and taking that first step of trying to find the right person, you might be thinking, well, we probably need to get someone that's got 10 or 20 years of, of experience that's been a head of sustainability in all of these other organizations. The reality is that you probably don't. You know, placing a little bit more trust in someone that has some of the right experience and some of the right ideas is the only thing that's going to start to build that kind of bench strength, get people into those roles, take a bit of a risk and ultimately get organisations on the right path. Thank you very much for that. Something that we, I wanted to talk to you about was this um, concept of transition, which I know is something that Viva Investors takes not only takes very seriously but it's very um sort of active um and um there's been the um one billion pound one billion pound transition loan and a target that was crossed early you know it'd be good to talk about that but also about some of the wider sort of wider kind of focus within the business on that that idea of transition and what that actually means basically <laughs> yeah absolutely well i guess over the last few years there's been a lot of focus on investing in green. 
And green buildings are what an investor would call a solution right to the to the to the problems that we're facing the big big topic that needs to be cracked is climate and a green building is a solution to climate because a green building is better than a brown building right so a building that uses less energy a building that is more um has lower carbon intensity because it doesn't have gas boilers a building that has good quality um thermal envelopes so that it doesn't heat up and cool down too much these are all good things but part of the problem is that we need to build a whole lot more new space, of course, to account for growing population, to account for countries sort of starting to um, grow their middle classes. But actually, a whole load of the real estate that we already have is unfortunately not fit for purpose. And UK Green Building Council have done a whole lot of really good research in this space. And it shows that 97% of the UK's building stock that's held by Better Buildings Partnership members, which is an organization of the largest real estate investors, is not ready to meet net zero standards. So 97%, almost all of the buildings that we have in our sector that that we invest in, that we manage, aren't on the right track to to, to net zero. So we can go and build more and more green buildings, which obviously has a big carbon cost. Um, And yes, that is part of the solution. But really, the solution is actually in transitioning, is in leading the existing buildings that we have from where they are now to where they need to be in the next 10, 20 years as we start to approach the times that most organisations and governments have targeted to reach net zero. And what's really unique about real estate as an as an asset class for investors is that there's a great value opportunity there. You know, in so few other sectors, is there a really good opportunity to say, I'm going to take a brown asset of some type, you know, carbon intensive, underperforming, uh, polluting type asset. I'm going to invest in that and then I'm going to reap the benefits. You know, it's not such a clear path in other asset classes. If we think about investing in equities, you could invest in a listed company, you could engage with them to try and make them more green, but it might not work, right? There's no guarantee. Whereas in real estate, it's a tried and tested formula. You take an old building, it's polluting, it's carbon intensive. You take it off the market, you invest in it, you make it more green. That's immediately more appealing to the potential occupiers or potential buyers. And then you make money through the process. That is a fantastic opportunity for the whole sector. So that's what we've got to get people geared around is starting to think not about green as a cost or something that is a burden or something that's been imposed on us, but transition as a value opportunity and as a fantastic way for us to make money, which is good for people's pensions and good for people's savings and good for keeping the economy afloat, but also attack this critical problem of buildings really being pretty inefficient and needing to be much more efficient for them to reach net zero. Thank you very much. And the next question is sort of the natural the natural progression to what you just said, which is, you know, around the, the how. how. How how do we do that? How does real estate do that? And it, see, it seems like both a very large and very simple question in one. But to, to let me explain a bit, I think that, and I'm sure you'll know what I mean when I say this, there are solutions out there. But in a way, there are so many solutions out there that that, that can then cause friction. You know, if, you, if you're if you um, sort of a real estate company or business or you're in the de- sort of design sphere and you're looking to sort of, you know, get involved or whatever it is that you might be doing, 
if you're not already in the know and you know there are all these different solutions out there i think that can feel a bit overwhelming very noisy so two questions in one for you here one how do people cut through that noise um and two is there anything that, that you and that you guys have noticed or are following that you think is really game-changing in this space yeah absolutely well i guess the, the way to answer that for me is the solutions in terms of the practical things that we need to do are well known right give you an example project drawdown a hundred proven climate solutions a uh, great website there's a book uh, there's a whole load of free materials that you can download from there that addresses quite a lot of topics within kind of energy and real estate so in terms of what we need to build and what we need to do we know what that is right we need to improve the fabric efficiency of buildings we need to be um, taking out gas boilers and replacing them with fossil fuel free forms of heating like air source heat pumps we need to um, work on improving the amount of energy that's actually generated on site in buildings by installing solar right Th these are very simple things that everyone and everyone knows about the problem is is what are the instruments that are needed to be able to deliver those things? And that's where some of the complexity is, I think. Now, Al Gore refers to this uh, as the agency issue, right? Is, is this idea of an owner of a building not having the agency to be able to do what they need to do because you've got an occupier sitting in the building. So you can't just bowl in there and, 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 uh, and, and do a refurbishment because you're, you're letting it out. Um, and, and similarly, the tenant or the occupier doesn't necessarily have the agency to be able to do what they need to do because you've got you're the owner and you've probably got some legal stuff to worry about and you've got some practical stuff to worry about you might not want to invest in in that building so everyone's stuck and the the opportunities and a lot of the value opportunities are in that gap that's where the the, the chance is to make money and also to deliver the sorts of solutions we need so to offer some practical examples of that, you talked about our sustainable lending program. That's one, right? Because what's happening there is the end client, which is a life insurance business, which is our uh, our internal client, as we call it within Aviva. It's the Aviva UK life um, insurance business. They're the asset owner. We're the asset manager and we're going to the borrower together with the understanding that the, the asset owners are on board, the asset managers on board, we're going to the borrower and we're offering them preferential rates, cheaper debt for them to improve their properties. Really simple model. But the reason why it works is because it's like a risk share, right? We're saying, we think you're gonna be a better borrower over the next seven years or whatever the duration of the debt is because you're investing in things that are gonna benefit your bottom line. And the borrower's saying, okay, I'm going to invest in my bottom line now and I'm going to reap the benefit of that in the future through cheaper debt. So everybody's taken a little step forward. It's not necessarily a huge step, but it's a small step forward and everyone's sharing a little bit of that risk. Another example would be in leasing. You know, over the last 10 years, a lot of people have talked about green leasing, right? And green lease clauses, everybody's got used to using those. But the real opportunity in leasing is about putting things into place where you get that little risk and reward approach and, and we start to share some of the risk of, trans, of transforming buildings for net zero. So just an example, we work with a, a major retailer to embed a clause into the lease, which would mean that they would improve their building 
over the lifetime of the lease. And to do that, in return, they got a cash donation basically to the fit out. Now, cash donations in leasing are just the norm, right? Everybody does that. You give a upfront cash donation that helps to fund the fit out of a building or you do give a rent free period. Totally normal. But what doesn't typically happen is that 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 rent free period or that cash contribution is tied back to some sort of sustainability outcome like green energy or you know improving the fabric of the building etc so there's a real opportunity in there to just put some simple instruments into place where both the occupier and the owner are working together sharing a little bit of that risk and taking a little step forward together thank you very much and there are a few things that came up there when you were talking that i just sort of wanted to sort of jump on really and one of them is this idea and actually it came up in an earlier answer that you gave um sort of around working together and collaboration. Um, and that's something that traditionally, and I'm sure people wouldn't wouldn't feel like I'm missed, like, you know, speaking out of turn here. Traditionally, the real estate sector has found difficult to get its head around just because it hasn't traditionally been the nature of the sector, collaboration. Um, and, you know, anyone that's looking into working in, in working sort of on this kind of stuff and making sure that it's integrated will know that one of the biggest pieces of I don't know whether you call it advice or guidance there is from people in the know is that the time not to collaborate has been and gone it's too late now and we're better together so how have you seen the industry in terms of collaboration um how important do you think it is and do you think we'll continue to see a lot of that happening going forward and also happening a bit more naturally as well yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to our sustainable lending program, that's a really great example of collaboration because what's happened there is borrower and lender have come together to share something, a sense of ambition, you know, an idea, something that's new, something that's different, and really kind of tackle it together. And I think the reason why that worked is because people are ready. And, and people are ready to to rock up to work every day and do what they always used to do in a different way. I think people have realized that the sector actually is hugely damaging. You know, they're probably sitting in front of the weekend papers and reading the headlines about what's actually going on. They've got their kids coming home from school, telling them what they've heard that day, what they've learned about the, the climate and, and what's happening to it. And I think people are the converting that into their own energy to come to come forward. So I think it just takes that little bit of boldness from organizations to reach out to people on the other side of the deal and say, well, actually, you know, how could we do this differently? I think it also just comes down to individuals. And a lot of what we do as um, as heads of sustainability in, in larger organizations is try and follow the bright spots. You know, there are some really inspired and engaged people out there um, who genuinely want to change the world in some small way. And I think it's really important for organizations to recognize and to put energy behind those people. There will always still be those people out there that, frankly, are just not interested, right? They want to keep their head down. They don't want to do things differently. They just want to do things in the way that they've always done them. And, and that's OK. It's always going to be like that. That's never going to change. Earlier in my career, I would have spent a lot of time on those sorts of people, sort of almost selfishly trying to convince them so that I could substantiate that I was right all along. 
actually that's not the way to do it we've got to follow the bright spots go with the smart people who want to change things up um, be bold encouraging them to be bold and to reach out to the people in their opposite numbers in organizations and say how can we do this differently you know the final thing that i would say on this is that if people that are listening are you know they're going to finish this podcast they're going to go back to their emails they're going to go back to the next deal if you're looking at that deal and whether it's a development or whether it's the next lease that you're going to be striking or whether it's um, some sort of a legal consultancy or whatever else it may be, if you haven't embedded sustainability in some kind of a way, if what you're doing isn't geared in some way towards actually delivering a different outcome, you're not getting it right, right? Because we are in the middle of a huge, huge change in the industry that's tantamount to the industrial revolution, right? It's the biggest change that we will ever see in our lifetimes. So if you're not in on it, you're not going to be on the right side of it. You're not doing it right. Thank you very much. Powerful message there. I wanted to talk to you about the power of big organisations there. Um, you mentioned that and specifically about the power of organisations with, act, with action. And one thing that Aviva Investors is doing, and, and you've, you've covered off some, some of the kind of more specific areas, it's actually actioning that um, responsibility to lead by example. So rather than just saying, oh, well, we, we firmly believe in X, Y, and Z, and you know, we, this, this is what we believe, which I think is a bit of a dangerous trap to fall into without then actually following through with action. Um, and it's something that Aviva Investors has been really good at. So could you talk to me a bit more about that, about the importance of not just talking the talk, but walking the walk as well and actually doing doing something about it at the same time as acknowledging that there's a problem? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important thing here and the lesson that I always learned right from the start of my career is start by starting. You know, you can always get things wrong and you can always fail and that's OK. But if you don't start, you won't learn and consequently you won't be able to move on. So I think, yes, it is confusing uh, the volume and the spread of different activities that you could possibly get involved in. But actually, organizations have to think what's something that we can do now that we can learn from, that we can maybe start to grow. Um, and if it doesn't go well, try something else. Right. And, and, and that's all right. The quicker that organizations learn, the quicker that we'll get um, that we'll, we'll get closer to where we, we were trying to get to. I mean, if we think about uh, what we've done at Aviva Investors in, in real assets over the last couple of years, um, it's really been about recognizing the strengths of the organization and starting to really build on those. So if we look at a couple of examples, when I first started at Aviva Investors, we were uh, we'd started a smart buildings program and it had about six assets in it and really smart buildings program we call it a smart buildings program but what it really is is installing sensors on key pieces of plant and equipment in buildings and then adding engineers into the mix so they can look at what the sensors are saying and they can basically go around switching things off and making the building more efficient so it's super simple we looked at that and we realized it was working so we said okay well let's do a lot more and we now have over 20 buildings, our largest, most energy hungry buildings in the program. Uh, it's helped to deliver over three million of utility costs uh, savings for our occupiers over the last five years. And it's grown to be something which is actually phenomenally successful. And that's just down to looking at what's working and then saying, right, let's do more of it. It's such a simple idea. 
I think we could also look at just broader kind of origination across um, the organization. You know, we've financed 1.4 billion of low carbon and renewable energy infrastructure last year. And what's important about that is that the volume of origination is going up, but also the uh, the percentage of origination against our total is becoming more and more green as the years go by. So it's gone from about 60% to about 80% of all of our origination is focused on these climate solutions. And again, that's through looking at what's working, quietly ushering out the door some of the things that perhaps aren't working so well, and really just um, putting our energy behind the people and some of the systems that we have to do more of the stuff that's positive, um, whilst kind of quietly forgetting about stuff, some of the stuff that isn't working. And I'd encourage everyone to take that approach. A couple more questions for you. It might seem a bit back to front, and maybe it is, but I don't think it matters too much, is that I wanted to talk to you about drivers, drivers for action, drivers for change. And again, it's because it's, you know, you've you've touched on it here and there throughout this conversation. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, um, the financial and economic benefits and opportunities. You've mentioned the power of individuals. You've mentioned, you know, people people who want to change the world. When it comes to the driving force at the moment, how do you see that in terms of the balance? What is it that's really pushing you? You get people saying, oh, it's down to regulation. You get people saying, no, it's not. It's because of, you know, it's because of people, you know, people know that if they don't do something, then, you know, their business is going to be out of date and they won't be able to attract any fresh talent. Then people are saying, yeah, but it's also about because there are people who just genuinely care and want to do something about all this situation. I mean, it, I, if it were me answering the question, which it's not, it's you, it feels like it's a, a big mixture of everything, but that's just me. I mean, how do you see it, this sort of the driver behind the change and the need for change? I really agree, actually, Emily. I think it is a mixture of, of everything and it's it's a combination of, you know, top-down influences from government, you know, bottom-up from people just coming to work every day and, and trying to do things in a better way. But I think one of the things that really is going to be transformational in the years ahead is the real weight of regulation and legislation that we're looking at now in financial services. So anyone in the sector will know about sustainable, um, sustainable finance disclosure regulations and the UK's equivalent, which is the sustainability disclosure requirements, two kind of parallel pieces of legislation which are encouraging um, financial products to declare exactly how they approach ESG and sustainability, what they do, how they do it. And that's really starting to uh, cause asset managers to really think about what this all means and start to change what's happening. I think even bigger than that is the movement from the asset owner side. So the long-term capital, the uh, pension funds, insurance companies, private wealth, family offices, a lot of those sorts of organizations are starting to face legislation and are starting to change. So they're either voluntarily members of net zero um, frameworks like the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, or perhaps they're a pension fund that's now caught by the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures uh, reporting requirements, or they might be a listed company that is 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 caught by the um, the uh, non-financial reporting directive. So there's a, a real spread of different drivers across asset owners that is starting to drive them towards different outcomes. 
And if we look at our own research of what's happening, it's really clear that clients and asset owners are not only uh, intending to allocate more of their capital towards ESG integrated solutions, where at least the risks are being considered, but they're also planning to allocate uh, capital towards reaching their own net zero goals, because increasingly large numbers of clients have uh, net zero goals themselves. So that's the big, big thing that's going to change. And it already is causing some change in the industry. You know, if we look at something like the EU taxonomy, which is the EU's definition of what makes green or, or not, that's already starting to Im- influence the design of buildings. It's already starting to influence what investors see as being a good opportunity in the long term. And that's going to really start filtering down into developers, into design guidance for design teams. It's going to start filtering down into employers' requirements for contractors. It's going to start coming into um the occupier world, right, in terms of buildings needing to be improved as they're being managed. So that that's this is the really the biggest shift that we've seen so far in financial services, certainly in most people's careers in, in, in the sector. Um, and it's really, really going to start to bite over the next few years, which I think is a really positive thing. Thank you very much. I always ask people a final question, which is what, you know, what their um message would be to the listeners of the podcast or you know the audience if it's on stage or whatever it might be and it sort of feels like every answer you've given me is is a is would be a final message which is great shows that you know every question has been answered with something sort of very um important and personal on the subject but i will ask the i will ask the question uh, you might feel god whatever i say is going to be a repetition or you might have something very new to add either is fine if you were to leave the listeners with one message to take away with them after this podcast what would it be well there's something that i heard once upon a time that always resonated with me and i think this is probably the thing that i'd like to share and it's a quote by a a journalist called maria popova and it, it goes like this i'll read it a couple of times just to make it clear so critical thinking without hope is cynicism but hope without critical thinking is naivety. I'll go again just for clarity. Critical thinking without hope is cynicism, but hope without critical thinking is naivety. And I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about climate, they're thinking about inequality, they're opening up the news every day and seeing the state of the world. I think most people now in our sector will have started to piece together that perhaps the impacts of what we do isn't always positive. It can be if it's done in the right way, but it isn't always positive. And people are starting to see ESG and sustainability everywhere they look, and they're probably starting to get a little bit critical about it, right? They're starting to think, well, what is all of this noise? Um, Maybe there's some people out there that are on the complete flip side, right, where they're thinking that everything is magically just going to get better, and it really isn't. So I think a combination of having that hope and positivity and being that person that reaches out to someone on the other side of the deal and says no like let's stop here let's do it differently let's come up with another way to do this lease let's come up with another way to do this development let's make the design better whatever those sorts of people are the people that have hope and that's an incredible thing i think the people that are thinking critically about this situation but aren't thinking positively 
probably need to start to shift their mindset because we can do this differently. We can organize our, our, our projects. We can um, change our organizations. It is all possible. So I think that combination of those two things is what's going to really get us towards the right answers and really start to get the industry moving in a different direction. Well, as final thoughts go, that's that's, that's pretty strong, <laughs> I have to say. And um, as, a as a journalist, to hear a quote from another journalist, so epically brilliant I now feel like I've not done anything the last god knows how many years of my career um so uh, an excellent quote and one that really is is works so well with the the subject that we've been discussing but can be applied to so many things um, and I'll certainly I'm just pleased that I've got a transcription device going so it's been noted down twice because you're so <laughs> um Ed thank you so much for joining us today